my view is that the idea of a disease of addiction, it's not just a wrong idea, it's a harmful idea because convincing people that they have a lifetime malady that comes out of the inside of them that can't be changed, that's not a constructive way to engage with people that you're trying to be helpful towards. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Booze is one of the most ancient and most prolific drugs in society. It's been getting people fucked up since before recorded history. Yet for some reason, it's always placed in some separate category, drugs and alcohol. Even seasoned drug journalists like myself make this unnecessary distinction sometimes. For example, at Narcotica, we've done over 65 episodes about drugs, and not one of them has focused solely on ethanol. We just haven't gotten to it yet. We've had so much more we want to talk about. But the relationship people have with alcohol is so illustrative of Western society's perspective on addiction and substance use, which is linked to the idea that addiction is a disease. That's sort of a step above the idea that addiction is a kind of moral failing, that addiction makes you a bad person that is going to hell. We at Narcotica will be the first to tell you, and we will repeat this until we are blue in the face, that drug use has no bearing on morality, and struggling with any substance just means that you are struggling. You are not a bad person simply for putting chemicals, legal or illegal, in your body. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Beaming to you from California's high desert, we have an excellent interview today with our guest, Dr. Stanton Peel, a brilliant psychologist and the author of Love and Addiction, co-authored by Archie Brodsky, a 1975 book that has really turned the idea of addiction as a disease on its head. We'll get more into the gritty details of what that means in a second, Many giants in drug policy analysis, including Maya Solovitz and Dr. Carl Hart, have cited love and addiction as influential on their way of thinking. But before we get to that, I have some very sad news to report. This week, David Stewart, a pioneering activist and self-described chemsex OG, died. David was a strong voice for the queer and trans community, especially in the UK where he lived, and we were fortunate enough to have him on as a guest once, way back on episode 33. It's one of our best interviews, and we are very saddened to hear of his loss. David, you will be missed. Thank you for standing up for people who didn't have a voice and for your influence on all of us here at Narcotica. Okay, that brings us to our one and only advertisement. Narcotica is an independent production, and we want to keep it that way. We are listener-supported, so we don't have to have stupid fucking ads about posh addiction treatment centers or CBG extract, because now CBG is better than CBD or whatever. And we can also swear in shit. It's awesome. We are beholden to no one. But to keep it that way, we could use your help. Go to patreon.com slash narcotica and join the more than 60 people who help make this show a reality. Even a dollar or two will help a lot. We want to keep bringing you accurate, compassionate drug policy reporting that isn't tainted by capitalism, although... Everything is tainted by capitalism. It's just the world we live in. Anyway, patreon.com slash narcotica. It really helps us out. Also, you can share us, get the word out about us, 
To learn more about Narcotica, you can go to narcocast.com. You can listen and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and many other places. We have over 60 episodes on every drug topic you can think of. Heroin, meth, cocaine, cannabis, psychedelics, even antibiotics and kratom. What else? Uh, We're also on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Just give us a follow and a rating and all that good stuff. And now onto the show. Our guest today is Dr. Stanton Peel, a psychologist who has pioneered, among other things, the idea that addiction occurs within a range of experiences and recognition of natural recovery from addiction, the idea that most people just kind of outgrow addiction. He developed the Life Process Program and has authored many books since the 1975 publication of Love and Addiction, co-authored by Archie Brodsky. His latest is A Scientific Life on the Edge, My Lonely Quest to Change How We See Addiction. Stanton, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be with you, Troy. I've, I've heard so much about your show. Uh, let's start with a little brief history, if we can, um, how you came into the addiction medicine space and what it was like in the 1970s when you wrote your first book, Love and Addiction, co-authored with Archie Brodsky. This book was pioneering in many ways. It introduced a radical new idea about what addiction is. Mainly, it is not a disease, like many people believe. And uh, many folks, including Maya Solovitz and Dr. Carl Hart, Previous guests of this show have cited your work as fundamental and radical. So I'm excited to talk to you about this stuff. But uh, let's talk about where you got your start. Well, Love and Addiction was published in 1975, but, you know, it took a few years to get it organized. So I began writing it in 1971 when I had come back from South Africa. And I came to addiction from entirely outside of the field. I didn't come out of a rehab background. I certainly didn't come out of a 12-step background. I I came as a psychologist and as a social psychologist. And but that's not to say that I hadn't been thinking about addiction for and drugs for a long time. I, you know, obviously I came through the 1960s when drugs were a giant topic. And so I reflected on the fact that. the people in my world said, well, marijuana, it's not so bad. How do people mistakenly lump it in with heroin? But then I just thought, well, why would heroin or any other drug be outside of that realm? Why wouldn't you consider all drugs to be as plastic as one or another? Who, Who decided that one drug was different? And as you talk to Carl Hart, That insight, which is now I had, 45 years old, is one that Carl Hart and some other people are exploring around the opioid scare. Well, wait a second. Don't most people take opioids without negative implications? Isn't it only a small percentage of people who take painkillers who become have a problematic relationship with them? And that was always my inclination going in. And of course, when I wrote Love and Addiction, heroin was addiction. Really, heroin, everybody thought was totally addictive. And when you said addiction, everybody just thought heroin. This is decades before smoking was thought to be addictive. Although we mentioned smoking, among other drug addictions, as being as addictive as any other drug or as non-addictive as any drug. On the other hand, of course, love and addiction is about, if you go to my Wikipedia uh, 
entry or if you talk to historians about it, what I, the thing, the keynote they generally say about me is I invented process addiction, by which they mean, well, you know, heroin's a thing you take and alcohol is something you drink. But what about getting engaged in an activity that becomes all encompassing and destructive? I personally never use the term process addiction because I'm thinking only of addiction. I'm not thinking, well, oh, here's one category of things that's addictive, and here's another category, and they're process addictive. Yeah, you're talking about things like sex addiction or gambling, sort of these like, you're not taking a chemical and putting it into your body, but these things can sort of be addictive. You were a pioneer on this, like before even the term sex addiction was a thing, you were kind of talking about this concept that it's not just a chemical relationship that can be addictive. And I find that um, really interesting. And the mediating way that I describe that is you become addicted to an experience. You get involved in an overwhelming experience that has some gratification for you and it crowds out your ability to deal with anything else. So I was just reading an article in the Times, Zach Rhodes and I just did a podcast about a woman who couldn't, the end of the story is she commits suicide and all along her partner is beating her up severely. And she kills herself because he withdraws from her. So when you think that through, you go, wait a second. I mean, the first naive thing people do is to say, well, why don't you leave him? He's beating you. And yet she was so dependent on that relationship, as destructive and harmful as it was to her, that when he withdrew, she committed suicide. And to understand that radical concept of how completely in, ensconced in an experience you are, was that was the fundamental of my insight that caused me to write Love and Addiction. And, you know, getting back to where I got these ideas, you know, I had friends in college or people I knew in college, and one in particular, who withdraw from his whole world of a, a friendship to become involved with a woman who was in high school at the time. They got married and he went to graduate school. And within a year, she left him because it was, you know, not an inappropriate relationship. They were only a couple of years apart. But, you know, once she grew up and went to college, she was in graduate school. She said, you know, this guy's not really what I want. You know, he's kind of a nerd. That happens. And she left him by just leaving a, a, a tape recording. And that was a tremendous insight to me. They were totally in love. He gave up everything for the relationship and then poof, just evaporated. That, that's, that's certainly the opposite of love. And so distinguishing between what love was and what addiction is and how understanding how a person can become so enmeshed in a relationship, whether a destructive one or one that's just all encompassing that can produce such negative outcomes or that can evaporate in a puff, allowed me to explore the nature of all kinds of addictive experiences. Okay, that's a great summary. And I understand that this idea, you know, was, I guess, challenging for some people to accept at first. 
what was the pushback like? And, and what's wrong with this idea of thinking that addiction is a disease? My life in the addiction field has been very conf- conflictful. And part of that's just my way of approaching life. And part of it's because I just don't buy anything that we hear. There's Maya and Carl both use a, a terminology that I've been using for a half a century, which is everything you believe about drugs and addiction is wrong. Uh, I've been saying that for quite a long time. And so, you know, you don't, you're not that popular when that's the approach you take. But starting back when Love and Addiction appeared in 1975, uh, you know, I actually was teaching at the Harvard Business School and some uh, a fellow assistant professor said to me, right, love is addictive. Ha, 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 ha. The idea is just preposterous to people on the one hand. And on the other hand, of course, they're saying, you're saying what Carl is now saying, that heroin is not a special category of thing that just makes you addicted. I mean, heroin is addiction. So coming at it from both angles, saying, well, normal, ordinary experiences can grow. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm saying a love relationship is the opposite of addiction. So not all, it's wrong to say, I believe love is addictive. It's right to say, I believe relationships that people label love can be extraordinarily addictive and yet impossible to extricate people from. That's an addiction. And that that's an overwhelming challenge to people. At the same time, I'm saying, well, drugs are not a special category of experience. I mean, there's not like, oh, in heaven, well, here's drugs. Well, and then there's here's addictive drugs, which at the time was heroin. That was the whole filling in that category. All of those categories are wrong. And when you're breaking out of categories, you upset people. But in large part, what I say in my memoir is, we people still can't break out of those categories. And I even find some of the most radical critiques, including Maya and Carl, brilliant people, both of them, are stuck in some of the same assumptions. They, they don't think is uh, naturally in a totally different direction, which is this. You need to think about addiction as totally disconnected from drugs or any specific object. It's a relationship that a person forms to an involvement or an activity or an experience that waxes and wanes that can reach overwhelming proportions which depends to a large extent on who that person is and where they are in life. Um, But it can just as easily improve. And my early examples, of course, was Vietnam, where guys became addicted. A lot of people took heroin, soldiers in Vietnam. Most didn't become addicted. Of those who were determined to be addicted because they went through withdrawal, who returned home, 93% of them quit their addiction by the within the first six months of getting home. Yeah, this is sort of a real-life example of the rat park experiment. You know, you put all these rats in cages by themselves and you feed them drugs and they're going to develop addictive behaviors. Whereas if you put these same rats in, like, a big cage with a bunch of other rats, lots of toys, lots of stuff, like, they're going to be, you know, 
<laughs> they, they ignore the drugs that are in the cage, you know, they, they take the saline or the water or whatever. Um, and a lot of people like point to Rat Park as this experiment. That, oh, that's in rats. How can you say <laughs> that that correlates to humans? But the Vietnam War, the Vietnam invasion was really a perfect example of that. And there are other examples, too. Those were the two examples I began with. By the way, I'm very proud that in an interview Zach Rhodes did with Bruce Alexander, I, I've known Bruce forever. And Bruce said that he did Rat Park because of reading Love and Addiction. There is, uh, while I was writing Love and Addiction, I was at the University of Michigan. And in a way that it's hard for me to ferret out, I was 22 years old. I wanted to see their animal laboratories. And somehow I managed to do that. I was dating a woman whose father was a pharmacologist, and I went to the head of the Department of Pharmacology, a guy who had a lot of things else to do than to talk to a 22-year-old psychologist. And I said, well, I want to see the animal addiction lab because I want to have theories about addiction. Let's go back to me sitting around and before writing Love and Addiction. People would say, oh, how can love and human experiences be addictive, rats get addicted or monkeys get addicted and they don't have all of those experiences. That was like the main argument against me. So when we went, I went to the laboratory with Archie Brodsky, he was visiting me in Ann Arbor. And the first thing you see is, well, those aren't really monkeys. In trees, they're in a three by six cage with the catheter strapped to their spine that they can press a lever to inject the drug into. That, I, when you think about it, how else were they going to do that research? They're going to have a bunch of monkeys and track them down and inject them. <laughs> Wait a second. Even for animals, this isn't a real experiment. Like, when would an animal be willing to take a narcotic? And when I wrote that up in the section and Bruce Alexander said, well, that inspired him to do Red Park to make that the variable. The variable being, well, what if the animal can do its sort of normal activities? Will he or she respond to an opioid uh, compared to when the animal can't do that? And so I, I was aware of the animal things from the start. And as soon as Red Park came out, Bruce contacted me. And I incorporated that with the Vietnam data to say, everything you think about addiction is wrong. The key element for succumbing to an addictive involvement with something is the situation that they're in. And that can be radically changed for an animal, but certainly a human being, just by changing their environment. So you inspired Bruce Alexander. That's really fascinating. I did not know that. Zach interviewed Bruce, and I was in on the interview. Zach's been a great asset to me. He said, well, that was interesting when Bruce said that he decided to rap part from reading Love and Addiction. And I said, he said that? And, Bruce, and Zach said, well, yeah. So in the interview that we did. And, you know, I've known Bruce forever. I, I, I had never, maybe I'd never heard him say that before. But it's in my memoir that that, that, was the impetus for him to conduct the lab parts experiments. Yes, I did want to talk about your memoir. You've written 14 books at this point. Your latest is A Scientific Life on the Edge, My Lonely Quest to Change How We See Addiction, 
which came out in June. It's available now. People can go pick it up or order it now. Um, now, this one is like a memoir of your time in drug policy and sort of a summary of your life's work. And you've been seen as an outsider for so long. Do you still feel that way? And what motivated you to write this book? You know, it's almost not a career. I've never held a job in the addiction field. I mean, I've never worked at a rehab. I've never, I did, well, you know, I taught a course or two at teacher's college and some, and the new school about drugs and addiction, but I've never had a job, a position where that was what I was supposed to do. And yet it's kind of fair to say, I quote Bill White, who's an historian of addiction and alcoholism. I've changed, modestly changed the whole way that people think about addiction. You know, it's now, I mean, the diagnostic manual now says, well, a substance use disorders and addictive behaviors, that whole concept that addiction expands beyond drugs. I was early into harm reduction. You can, you know, by our discussion of Rat Park and Vietnam, I was tuned in very early to the idea that, well, addiction is just not necessarily a permanent thing. It depends on where you are in life. Um, that, of course, the impact of situational factors on addiction is part and parcel of that. And then the policy implications of that are obviously the simplest thing you can say is, well, if you give people, which is, you know, where Bruce goes with it, more opportunities and expand their horizons and options, well, they're less likely to be addicted. So I've came up I've come up with a lot of ideas that are pretty influential. Uh, you know, people, both Carl and Maya say I've, I've changed the whole field. Uh, Ethan Nadelman, I've known forever. Uh, in an interview we did with your, your colleague, Zach Siegel, said, well, two books changed his whole approach to thinking about drugs. Uh, Andrew Wiles, The Natural Mind, and my book, The Meaning of Addiction. And, Ethan contacted me after he read the meeting of addiction. I mean, he knew sort of all the individual facts that I did. For example, he knew uh, that Orthodox Jews who smoke cigarettes don't smoke on the Sabbath. So how does that work? I mean, you just dwell on that one thing. Well, they're addicted. Well, except when God tells them not to smoke. And so they don't smoke all day. How does that happen? What does that say about the nature of the influences on addiction? So even as I influence people and change their minds, I've since I'm never in the mainstream, I'm always tugging and tossing. And recently, in the last year or two, Nora Volk has been kind of edging away from some of her views and um, Maya was good enough to say what an impact in her, her book, um, love and addiction was on her. And Nora Volko actually wrote about love relationships being addictive. And then she said, oh, you know, Maya Salovitz invented that. But, you know, Maya was good enough to say, well, that idea changed her thinking and Stanton Peel and Archie Brodsky wrote about it. You can't actually read what she said and not recognize that I'm the progenitor of that idea. So why would, 
let me, why would Nora Volko, do you think Nora Volko has ever, she's never, I think, mentioned my name or written my name anywhere. Do you think she knows who I am? Uh, that'd be a good question to ask her. Thanks. Do, do ask her. I, I believe she knows who I am. Um, then the question becomes, why wouldn't she utter my name? And so, uh, you know, speaking of Orthodox Jews, I, I don't think they're allowed to say God's name. It's almost like she can't force herself to put her lips around my name and say, well, Stanton Peel uh, recognizes the extendability of love relationships to addiction. Why would you think, why can Nora Valko not acknowledge my existence? I, there's no correct answer to that question. Uh, do you have an idea? Well, no. I mean, I've never even interviewed her before, and she's not here to ask, so I would have no idea. But uh, I guess, you know, let's get a little meta here. Like, why is that important that she acknowledge you? Well, I mean, one of the things about me, for better or worse, I'm a person who's shooting for all time. I, I mean, one asks, uh, when you, you could ask the question, if you, if nobody gave you financial support and really you didn't get that much professional or emotional support, like I'm always finding out people like Carl and Maya and Bill White who talk about what a great impact I've had on them. But I never experienced that when I was actually, I'm now 75 along the way. Right. You know, I mean, I was just on my own. And so one question you might ask that I, Address in the memoir is how does a person do that? It's not, you know, kind of row upstream on your own for decades. And part of the answer was I had the great support of my then wife, and I had the support of Archie Brodsky. And I have a kind of a pretty strong resolution. And I'm a person who's not oriented to, well, people like me right now, whatever. I'm shooting for the big game of where will I go down in the history of thinking about addiction and the universe. And, you know, one thing I'm very gratified about is that I kind of make a lot of appearances in Wikipedia. And my entry's not bad. At, I, I didn't write it about recognizing that I, the things you've been talking, we talked about process addiction how I changed thinking to incorporate that um, in the discussion of disease theory of addiction and of alcoholism, I'm prominently mentioned. And that, that's important to me. I'm a person who wants to go down in the history of ideas. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that you uh, were hoping someday to get a Nobel Prize in medicine for your contributions. And, you know... Kind of a little joke I make, you know. <laughs> when Archie reviewed the book, he said, well, people have to see this as humorous because at one point I say, um, I know it seems a little ludicrous for me to imagine getting a Nobel Prize when I can't even get a job at a university. You know, you would think that would come first before you win the Nobel Prize. And that's the joke of uh, the, t the tension of my life is that I didn't get a lot of small rewards. And yet, I can claim to have had a major impact on thinking about addiction. 
Yeah, I can understand wanting that recognition, especially you spent so many decades pushing back against this narrative. For me personally, you know, growing up, you know, finding out or, or being taught that addiction is a disease was a step forward. Like, at least you're not thinking it's a moral failure. You know, it was helpful for me to not judge people for that. But then realizing that addiction is not really a disease, it's way more complicated than that. It, it opens up a lot more compassion. And I think actually addressing the issue when it's problematic and like distinguishing between addiction and dependence is also really key. You can see from our discussion of love and addiction that I wasn't thinking disease-wise. And obviously, if you're thinking about Vietnam, you're not thinking, oh, they had a disease. Um, and so the next phase of my career was to enter combat because um, right in the early 80s was the attack on controlled drinking, which is another word for harm reduction, which was, well, you know, some people don't abstain. And so I was engulfed by that battle, which in a way almost ended my career. I certainly had a weather storm. I was on the total blacklist. Uh, I describe in my memoir, I had been invited to give the keynote address at the University of Texas Summer School, University of Texas, state agency, and then they withdrew it. And then I threatened to sue them and they went through it. But then everybody else on that mailing list wasn't going to invite me to give speeches anymore. You know, here's a guy who's against the disease theory of addiction. And it doesn't fit the data. I mean, did those rats have a disease? Did those guys in Vietnam have a disease? I'm glad you say it's more compassionate. It's my view is that the idea of a disease of addiction, it's not just a wrong idea. It's a harmful idea, which is really at the root of the problems we face now. We've always faced, but which have gotten worse around the opioid death crisis. Because convincing people that they have a lifetime malady that comes out of the inside of them, that can't be changed, you, you perceive, I think, that's not a constructive way to engage with people that you're trying to be helpful towards. Yeah, absolutely not. It's, uh, when, you, when you frame it as a disease, it's sort of like saying, like, this is a, a thing that's inherent in you that must be fixed. Well, it can't be fixed. It's your permanent burden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's so pathologizing because drug use is a spectrum. Like, I want to get to alcohol addiction because this is a drug that, you know, even I overlook a lot of the time. And I got to say, alcohol is the drug that the one that I struggle with the most and the one that's gotten me into the most trouble by far. But my use now in my 30s is way different than my 20s. And it's just like it's changed and you can't put it all into the same context. Like I, I'm more responsible. Obviously, if you've gotten ensconced in AA, you're not allowed to have that transition that you just had. Yeah. You'll, I, I, this is overkill. They'll kill you if you said, oh, I came to an AA. You're not allowed to go to an AA meeting. So oh, I've really improved my drinking. That's not what happens. And by the way, love and addiction, I, you know, it looked at relationships and it looked at heroin and other drugs. But when I got into harm reduction and expanding my ideas and my portfolio, I got into alcohol. I, there's nobody who's really as much into both alcohol and drug addiction in the same breath as I am. 
I mean, Maya's about drugs. Carl Hart's about drugs. That's what his research is about. I mean, obviously, Ethan's about drugs. Um, you know, other Bill Miller, the motivational interviewing guy, really comes out of alcohol. That's where Alamar that started for sure. I've always thought of the two in unison. And it's ironic, they have different traditions and concepts. With alcoholism, the concept in AA and elsewhere was, oh, you're born an alcoholic, tough. With heroin, the idea is, well, the drug is so addictive, anybody who takes it becomes addicted. So there were like two totally different ways of thinking about addiction. But my whole menu has been to say, well, let's think about all forms of addiction in the same framework and understand their dynamics. They That should cover from one to the other. Yeah, it is... <laughs> I I had to always correct myself, and a lot of people do this too. They're like they're always saying drugs and alcohol, like its own separate category. And you know, even on this podcast, we haven't really done an episode that's solely dedicated to one of the most popular drugs on the planet, ethanol. And I, I, why do we ignore alcohol so much? I mean, even some people steeped in drug policy can't seem to help it. We don't obviously people think a ton about alcohol. Although right now they're thinking about opioids, but even now, of course, alcohol is a thousand times more prevalent and concerning than drugs, but we have different mind categories for them and people just can't switch. Because what I said about heroin, well, most people take it, don't become addicted to it. Look at Vietnam and most people who become addicted to it outgrow the addiction. Those are two things you weren't allowed to believe about alcohol. Uh, well, you knew that about alcohol. Most people take it, don't become addicted. So saying that about opioids, which is true as well, most people take painkilling pills, don't become addicted, is just bringing that to those two obvious things together and saying that, well, look, in heroin, they outgrew it from Vietnam. The same thing happens with alcohol. They're just two different ways of thinking about those substances. But in fact, in all their broad parameters, they're the same. You have this great piece that was published in Filter Magazine recently, which people can read at filtermag.org, called uh, Warn That Alcohol Causes Cancer, Add That Drinkers Live Longer. I found it interesting because, you know, for the last decade or so, there's been this trend coming out of some medical journals and even from certain health agencies, like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which have said that, you know, alcohol causes cancer, no amount of drinking is safe, not even one drink per day minimum or whatever. It used to be two drinks per day minimum for men or maximum, I think. Uh, but these guidelines were recently changed. I mean, I guess the question is, what is your overall view on the public health messaging that is coming out about alcohol? Do you think it's appropriate? Why or why not? An important thing about our thinking that I've always been aware of, uh, Bruce Alexander's aware of it, Nick Heather. Bruce and Nick are two of the people who think quite a lot the same way that I do, is the temperance mythology. Our whole way of approaching addiction, even to drugs, comes out of temperance. Yes. We don't realize the extent. I mean, they banned alcohol entirely during prohibition. And the idea was you should never drink from the start. And in the last set in the 19th century, alcohol was viewed the way we view opioids today. Well, if you drink it, you just can't stop. And that keeps getting worse. And that constantly creeps into our thinking. It's And America is a temperance nation. And every time a finding pops up, 
that alcohol has a beneficial impact, it's immediately suppressed. It seemed to be a public health. You can't say that. And even the people that discover these things say, of course, we're not going to tell people this. We're certainly not going to tell people to drink. But just as there's a parade of data that show that opioid addiction is not a permanent characteristic, a parade of research that shows that most people outgrow alcohol and drug addictions, there's a parade of data and research coming from every sphere showing that moderate drinking reduces heart disease, which is the major killer of men and women, and that drinkers live longer. There's virtually no study that examines that question over time that has a population of people and follows them that doesn't have that finding. So there's a whole industry of trying to sweep that under the rug And one way they do that is to say, well, the people who drink, you know, they're healthier. And that's why. So the research says, well, we'll only look, if you have a large enough study, at lifetime abstainers. And then drinkers live longer than they do. So it's not that they quit because they were sick. And every kind of foil that's thrown in the road can be pushed away. But that the whole point of my life and my work with addiction and alcoholism is you never win these fights. If America is a temperance nation, we'll always be jaggedy and worried about alcohol. If Americans have been socialized to believe that opioids and heroin are addictive, I'm not going to write an article and convince everybody uh, about the alternative. But I never quit trying to throw out the truth there. There's a goal I have in life of just letting the truth be known. And somehow, hopefully, it'll creep into. I mean, one of the things that Ethan Nadelman did, if you talked about controlled drinking, you could end your career in the 1980s. So Ethan popularized the idea of harm reduction. Once you start talking about harm reduction, that's sort of like a whole other concept oh, well, they're not trying to become controlled drinkers. They're trying to reduce the negative impact of drinking. Well, how do you do that? Well, you don't drink in dangerous situations. Um, You keep up your lifestyle and your work. Or you cut back your drinking. That becomes one part of that. So gradually over time, and Archie Brodsky was somebody who said, well, when we wrote Love and Addiction and when I was banned from the University of Texas and other places, Archie would always say, well, you know, attitudes will change. And now we have harm reduction. And it just so happens that you and I are talking in a week. Uh, You may be aware of this when for the first time in history in America, New York has opened two, they call them, overdose prevention sites yeah they used to be called they used to be called a lot of things you know substance use sites yeah yeah i actually had a question on here about what you prefer to call them first of all that news was so welcome i was so excited to hear that it's the first uh i should say sanctioned uh supervised consumption site in the u.s because there have been several throughout the country who knows where they were uh they were underground not not entirely above board and but this is great that we're finally coming out of the shadows on this issue because 
Um, many countries have had these things for decades. Yeah, and it, it came with no fanfare. Yeah. They, yeah. they were always thinking, well, uh, Rhode Island's thinking about starting one. Right, right. Portland, Oregon is exploring the possibility. And then on Tuesday, I read, well, they opened it. Finally. And then I just happened to see Mayor de Blasio on television giving a fairly good version of it and defending it and, and drawing the power. But I mean, one of the stories I tell is I, Bill de Blasio go, went to the same Y as me in a Park Slope. And I started talking to him about his daughter being in treatment for whatever. And he said, well, you should really talk to my, you know, commissioner of mental health who's working on addiction. And uh, he, he said, give me your email. And I did. And the guy actually contacted me. Well, you know, he had heard of me. So I won't say I had any impact in this development, but obviously my way of thinking about heroin is not being an all encompassing, deadly experience in and of itself is facilitative of that thinking. Let me ask you a question. Sure. Blasio publicizes it. it was on Morning Joe. He says, well, it's also a great opportunity for people to quit the drug altogether. Is that the purpose? How do you think about that? Is the purpose of a safe consumption site to get people to stop taking drugs? Is that the purpose? In my opinion, no. And I, I agree with you saying, like, I don't like to call them overdose prevention sites. I prefer to call them supervised consumption sites because you're not going there to just prevent overdose. You're going there, sometimes they'll test your drugs, they'll give you clean syringes. The, the goal is to go there to consume something and to do it under medical supervision so you don't hurt yourself. I don't think it really has any bearing on quitting and it shouldn't. A needle exchange programs did turn out to have a positive benefit because, and think about it just the way we've been doing it. If you normalize your life, if you make it, well, Maya, one of the best things I ever heard, Maya, we were both on a tape that was produced by the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center. It was one of the most moving things that Maya ever, I ever heard her say. She said, well, for some people, going to a needle exchange program is the first time they've ever been someplace where somebody said, I care whether you live or die. Yeah, yeah. That's a start. And then, you know, you're taking care of yourself and you're in touch with people who can help you think about your drug use. And so it's a force in a positive direction. But I agree with you 100%. The purpose of harm reduction is to keep you safe, to keep human beings safe, to show that you care for them as human beings, but it, and to improve their lives. If you're not going to die and get an AIDS, that's an improvement. And to allow you to maybe more normally structure your life. If my whole model, you mentioned the life process program, my version of harm reduction as represented by the life process program is don't think about addiction in terms of the thing you're addicted to. Think about it in terms of yourself and your relationship to the universe. And as you improve, any steps you take to improve your relationship to the universe will improve your relationship with the addiction to the addiction with the possibility of exiting an entire. So they're related, uh, but the purpose shouldn't, I agree with you, the purpose shouldn't be defined in terms of, oh, 
we're giving them, you know, a safe place to use drugs so they can quit drug use. That can be a path they're following, but there are people who just keep using drugs. And, you know, they're human beings and that's their shtick. And you're not going to force them not to do it. We try to force them not to do it by arresting them. And you're not going to force them not to do it by telling them, oh, uh, we're glad you're coming here. Stop taking drugs. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, supervised consumption sites or syringe access programs, they um, are often like, you know, the only time some people will get a smile and be treated like a human being. And But it's also sometimes the only time that they get any sort of health care. And so... When you add those two things together and a lot of the other benefits of these programs, like, yeah, some people take a look at themselves and say, hey, I want to use my my substances differently. I want to have a different relationship with drugs. Some people don't. And that's okay, too. I think a lot of people function better on meth. Some people function better on heroin. Like, that's just a fact of life. Like, and we'll prescribe them drugs that are just sort of tweaked, a little bit different, you know, Vivance has all these patents attached to it we'll give you that but if you want actual meth you know if that works better for you like no we're gonna have to give you jail time and unless you're lucky enough to get this oxen but you know i welcome carl hart jumping into the fray you know saying well most people use drugs constructively and of course going further back i have to we have to uh chip our caps to the original harm reduction people edith springer and of course, our, our great friend, Pat Denning, and they don't go to people or people come to them and say, oh, we're going to get you off drugs. They say, we're going to deal with you where you're at and help you to live the best life you can within that framework. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Zach and I, in our last podcast, I don't know when it'll come out, had that same, it's a radical thought, scary to say that woman who killed herself had been with that guy for years and years and years. And so she ended up dead. That's a bad outcome. Um, and everybody was always telling her, well, you have to leave this guy. Is, is it a radical concept to say, well, okay, you're with this guy. How can you make that relationship actually survivable? Is that a scary idea to you, Troy? I mean, imagining consulting with a person in an abusive relationship and saying, um, well, let's see what we can do within this abusive relationship. Oh, that is a question that uh, is way above my pay grade, to be honest. But without knowing more details about it and that kind of thing, like I'm not. A you can see where that's a kind of a scary, radical idea. No, I, yeah, I can totally. I mean, it makes me uncomfortable to even try to answer that question because it's so. Yeah. Oh, I already do that to you. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Now, remember, that woman's dead. Right. And she committed suicide. It's sort of like, you know, it's going back to the age. You know, people used to say, well, they're homosexual. If they were, you know, Reagan and Republicans said they should die. And there's a group of people that say, well, people shouldn't inject drugs. And if they do, they should get AIDS and die. And then you sort of can say, well, if a person can't leave an abusive relationship, what do you expect? We can't make, you know, we can't, they'll grow to die. You have to elevate yourself. I'm not a Christian or anything close to it. But, you know, and Pat Denning and others have helped to give you the idea, which you've expressed, people are not going to behave perfectly. There's always going to be a large group of people 
who are doing things that we know we wouldn't recommend and that are to some extent elevating their risk of very bad things, including death, but they're human beings who deserve to live. And, you know, there has to be a drug users union. There has to be a, a civil rights for drug users. And, you know, it's, I hope, I hope I don't get canceled. There has to be civil rights for people who are in abusive relationships that can't extricate themselves. They have to have a human rights platform. I like a lot about what you're talking about, that we really should really think about addiction as being more related to love and love being a little more related to addiction in a way. That's, I think, pushing both those ideas sort of closer to the center. We get a little closer to the truth on this issue. You've given me a lot to think about, so I appreciate that. Well, um, that's when I give begin a lecture, I start, I'm giving one on Friday and it so happens, Life Process Program is administered from Northern Ireland. My business partners in Northern Ireland, how that happened, who knows? And I'm giving a lecture in Northern Ireland, but you know, to a class, Queens College there, my, you know, podcast or video. And I always begin by saying, you know, this is going to be scary for you. I'm going to throw every idea you have about addiction and drugs and alcohol up in the air and juggle them around. I'm going to tell you virtually everything you think has to be reconsidered. So, you know, I have to issue you a fair warning that what I'm going to tell you, well, it's going to be scary. And so I'd like you to relax because the lower anxiety level will have you. But the first question I asked them, I have set up 13 questions. And the first question, one of the things that people notice about me and some hate about me is that I ask people questions. Like I ask you questions and you go, well, it's above my pay grade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here interviewing you. And so my first question to that group is, why do I ask questions? Well, let me ask you, why, why do I ask questions? Well, the Socratic method, right? Isn't that what it's called? All right. But why do I do it? What, what's my purpose in doing what, asking people questions? There's no correct answer. Yeah. What do I hope to accomplish by asking questions? I guess helping people think about it differently. I'm trying for, I don't want to put it this way, trying to get into people's heads. I can get, I used to give great lectures. I can give a great lecture about what causes an addictive experience, the characteristic of addictive experience. And everybody goes, wow, that was really fascinating. And it doesn't really change their thinking. It's the same as motivational interviewing as a therapy technique. Yeah, yeah. You tell people, oh, it would be so great if you quit smoking, bah, 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 bah. But unless you engage people inside of their minds and feelings, you're not going to accomplish anything. And, you know, People find that discomforting about me, that I'll go to a place and ask questions. So I'll tell you two of my most famous questions that I do during lectures. One is to say to a group, especially of recovering people, what's the hardest addiction to quit? And they all shout out the same thing. Heroin, right? No, never. Because <laughs> by the time I get to a conference, Okay. They all quit heroin. You know, I don't go to heroin conferences. I go to, right. they all shout out smoking. And there's data to support that. Yeah, yeah. 
people, when they do long-term studies, the average lifetime of a dependence on smoking is 24 years. The average dependence on a illicit drug is in the five to six year range. Because, you know, among other things, it's easier to smoke than to be a drug addict. So then go, well, that's fabulous. By the way, has anybody here ever quit? Uh, has anybody here quit smoking? I, I say, oh, has anybody here been addicted to cigarettes? You know, in a recovery conference, you know, two thirds of the audience raise their hand. And they say, oh, have any of you quit? And then most of them have quit by now. And then I say, oh, that's fabulous. How did you quit? Did you go to an AA or support group meeting or take a drug? And, you know, in an audience of 500 people, 300 people have raised their hands that they quit smoking. And nobody, you know, five people have used the drug. And I say, oh, man, you're so radical. I'm having a hard time with this. You've just told me that a majority of the people in this room have quit the toughest addiction to quit. And you did it without any kind of formal treatment. Certainly not going into recovery. How the hell? Tell me about it. Is that possible? What is that? What are you saying? And, you know, I throw the room into discombobulation. The other routine that I do is, uh, you know, everybody, well, opioids are addictive. Boom. Um, and so I go, oh, has anybody here in this room taken an opioid painkiller? Yeah. Um, at a calm conference of regular people. And, you know, everybody raises their hand. And then I say, oh, how many of you are addicted to an opioid painkiller? And nobody raises their hand. I said, well, maybe I'm making it too hard of a question. You don't want to admit that. Were any of you tempted by, you know, the painkiller you were on to continue using it? You know, some people raise their hand. And I say, are you using it? I hope you don't mind my asking. But this is an open series, a source conference. Are you currently taking an opioid painkiller? And they say, no. And I say, why not? And then they go, going back to the smokers, I say, I just want to pick a couple of you. Why did you quit? What kind of answers do you think people give for why they quit smoking? Did you ever smoke? Uh, yes, I did smoke cigarettes for several years. And uh, I, I don't want to brag, but it was easy for me to quit because I, I use psychedelics. They help me, I don't know, they help me focus on it. Uh, and it was easy. What answers do you imagine they give me? Their health, their family, you know. That's it. Those are number one. A family and health. They're stupid. I, stupid, I put in quotations. They're every average life process program is about how you quit addictions when your life is processing properly. They quit because other things in their lives became superior and overwhelmed whatever urge they had to do that. And so when I, when I go back to the opioid question, I say, well, why did you not continue taking the opioids even though you found them appealing? And their answers are, well, you know, I have a family and I have a job and I had to get up and, you know, again, I'm going to put around quotation marks. They give stupid reasons, stupid being these are powerful addictions. And yet the reasons people give for why they quit or are able to quit are just like daily run-of-the-mill things. It's so ironic, isn't it? Life is lived in the trenches. Yeah, totally. You'd think that it would take, if these drugs are as addictive as people claim, that it would take like some serious, like I had to be institutionalized for 90 days or I had to quit because of a judge's order, you know? 
One of the things I talk about in my memoir, Scientific Life in the Edge, I would never, one of the questions is, well, how did I support, I have three children, all of whom went to colleges. One went to Penn, one went to NYU. Those were expensive places. They graduated and worked well on their own and have good jobs, God bless them. And one way I made money since I was out of the mainstream was that people would come to me for off the wall things that my expertise were. So I consulted on the Exxon Valdez. I consulted on the Exxon Valdez. Can you imagine what specific issue I consulted on? Uh, no, I'm trying a complete blank. Uh, that was the major oil spill. The captain of the boat had been in alcoholism treatment. Interesting. And he had been drinking that night. And so the rap was, well, he was drunk and he crashed the boat. So they needed me to plug into, well, who says that? So that was very lucrative. On the other hand, I wouldn't testify at the trial. I just gave them back. Exxon ended up spending $23 billion. My fee didn't impact them very much. And I said, well, I'm not going to testify. And you don't want me to testify because if they say to me, what do you think Exxon should pay all these penalties? I'd say, yeah. <laughs> Captain Hazelwood didn't crash a boat, but you screwed up. Some, you did something wrong. Who should else? You should pay yeah. for the goddamn thing. So with smoking, the same thing, the tobacco people come to me. And I said, well, I'm not going to testify at a trial against somebody. And so here's a typical story. Maybe we can end with this. We're getting on an hour. Uh, this is a typical case. They would have experts for prosecuting the tobacco companies. And I don't care about the tobacco companies. Let them give all their money away, which will never happen. They'll be fine. And the person had been smoking since he was a teenager. He had a heart attack. And then 10 years later, in the 60s, 10 years later in the 70s, he died. But this is a typical story. He quit smoking for the last 10 years of his life. And the, all of the experts on the other side would say, well, he was addicted to cigarettes. And then I would say, well, you know, I would write up, well, he quit. And here's how he quit. Okay. Uh, he had his heart attack. His daughter, and he, you know, had open heart surgery. His daughter came to visit him in the hospital and he said, Honey, would you get me a cigarette? And uh, I hope I don't burst into tears. His daughter said, I'll get it for you, Dad. But if you smoke, I'll never talk to you again. Interesting. And he never smoked again. So, how did that happen? How did that happen that a guy smoked for 55, 50 years of his life? completely addicted and he didn't even decide to quit and so it gets back to why did they quit when they left vietnam I and mean, there's some forces that are more powerful in life and so that's an example of where you know i helped them strategize how they can argue well how is this guy an example of an irresistible biological mechanism that can never be reversed he quit for love but i would never testify in a trial i he's dead the tobacco company should give a million, $10 million to his daughter. That's fine with me. So I, I'm allowed, you know, I couldn't be a witness. For me, why do I do what I do? Truth is the most important thing. So when I read their experts saying, oh, you can't quit smoking, it's a disease, you know, and they have these charts about nicotine adjustment in the body, cellular adjustment, I say, well, that's not true. And it's not helpful for that to be true, to say it's true. When they say, well, Captain Hazelwood was in alcoholism rehab and now he was drinking and that 
proves that he was drunk driving the boat. He said, it doesn't prove anything. And then I, I'll say to the, you know, that's not true. But go ahead, you know, fight your own trial. You know what I mean? Whether you win or lose is not my department. Yeah. You know, since we're talking about this, you're kind of dispelling this idea that these drugs are so addictive that they can take control of your entire life. Some people even think that, like, one, taking heroin once, for example, or smoking once is just enough to, like, fuck you up for the rest of your life. But, you know, in pushing back against that a little bit, like, I can see or... Maybe listeners are like, well, you can't say they're not addictive at all, right? Like, or or that these drugs are quote safe, or do you know what I'm saying? Like that woman um, who killed herself. More people, you know, people undergo withdrawal from smoking and heroin, and it can be bad. Wasn't for you, but they don't usually kill themselves, right? But that's not unusual. Murder and suicide are often crop up in these relationships. And so, you know, one of my gigs is to say, well, you know, if love were a drug, love is the drug I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. It would be banned in terms of how many murders it leads to. But you're not going to, you know, you're not going to say, well, let's eliminate love. These experiences are a normal part of life. People have to be prepared to deal with them. And, you know, we're getting close to the end here. One of the things, you know, Carl is is har harping on the idea that we can't escape. Drugs are a normal part of people's lives. People take painkillers. Everybody, mm -hmm. if you ask people in the room, they'll all have taken painkillers. And we're not going to stop giving people painkillers. And, and, and one of the arguments for why there's so many deaths now, drug prescriptions have been halved since 2014. Right. It's not that people don't want painkillers. It's just saying, well, we're not going to give you painkillers. Right. And so that leads to a whole success, often for some people, to a succession of negative things like, well, maybe I'll go out into the street. And some and some people do kill themselves. They can't live with not without having those kinds of painkillers. And so the question is not whether or not people should experience heroin or smoking. You know, every human being is probably going to be exposed to, a, a, to an opioid painkiller and probably every kid's going to try smoking. The idea is how do we create people who have enough concern for themselves, enough involvement in life and enough personal agency so that they don't a succumb to these experiences addictive in the first place and b so that they can live their lives when they are exposed to them and hopefully emerge from that experience. Right. But there's a polarity there. When you kind of push back and you say, these drugs aren't as addictive as people think they are, and it's more about the context of their relationship and their life and everything, there's this tendency to be like, oh, well, you must be saying these drugs are totally safe. And I know that's not what you're saying. You're sort of saying something in the middle. But maybe you could address that a little bit. Isn't Carl Hart, uh, when, did you have that kind of an interrupt when you talked to Carl? Did you have that kind of a questioning issue with him? Yeah, I know he's had to answer that question a lot because like he mentions using heroin in his book and then a whole bunch of people in the media really latched onto that and like harped on that. That's the whole thing. Right, yeah. But he, he, he says, he goes beyond that. He says drug use is a positive experience mainly. Right. So he's going one step farther, you know, naturally I'm glad Carl exists. And, um, 
you're saying, you said that at the beginning of the session. You said, well, some people, for some people, it's better for them to be on meth or heroin than not to be on it. Right. I, and we, the main thing is we can't make that decision. So, you know, I was just talking with Zach Rhodes and you and I, not, I've never told anybody to take a drug in my life. Right. I run into them after they've taken the drug. You know what I mean? That's where I encounter people who've had a bad experience with drugs. And so I'm trying to ferret out how did this happen and what's the best way around it. So I'm not here to recommend drugs, but I'll certainly say you can't eliminate the objects of addiction. There's a guy, uh, I forget, the Australian child helper guy. He, I have to steal his idea. He said, don't ask about the drug. Ask about the person. Yeah, that's good advice. That's the issue that, and of course, we can't change drugs. And opiate painkillers and alcohol are never going to go away. Nothing's going to go away. There's only more drugs. Loves and destructive relationships aren't going to go away. All we can do is deal with people as individuals and the society that they live in. And, you know, we're facing a tough society now. Um, you know, 100,000 people died in a year prior to April 30 from drug experiences. Right. But things aren't getting better. And, no. you know, my argument is that we've got the disease theory forever. And, you know, as Nora Volko became head of the NIDA in 2003, how have things been going since she became head of the NIDA? Uh, drug deaths are now five times as great as they were back then. You know, if, if it was a Nora, if you were the head of a, if you were CEO of an investment company, they would have fired your ass a decade ago. So, you know, I, I mean, on that, I'm one, I'm on one with Carl on that. You know, drugs are a natural part of the universe. People use them in better or worse ways. Most people use them constructively. And the issues that we're asked to deal with are where are they coming from when they interact with these addictive experiences? That's the part we want to influence. I think that's a really good summary of our conversation today. Uh, so that's a good place to stop. Uh, is there anything else you want people to know about or anything like that? Scientific life on the edge. Maybe people got a sense from our interaction. What's he mean on the edge? And the last thing it says is my lonely quest to change how we see it. I'm looking at you're my role model, Carl Hart. And I'll just end with Nick Heather. Stan Beal has done as much as anyone to reveal the inadequacies, the absurdities, and injustices of the idea that addiction is a disease, and specifically the disease of the brain. In a constant flow of influential books, articles, and blogs over more than 40 years, he's persuasively extended the critique of the disease theory of addiction beyond the scientific community to the general public. When the disease theory is eventually replaced by a more rational and humane approach in the popular understanding of addiction, God bless Nick Heather, Stan Peel will be first in line to receive the plaudits and those of us who broadly share his view will owe him a profound debt of gratitude. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Troy, for having me. You want to give me a chance to talk? Yeah, thank you so much, Stanton, for coming on the show. It's been great talking with you. Um, people can find you on Twitter at spl5. Uh, that's 
S-P-E-E-L-E-5. And uh, we'll have a link to your book in the show notes and everything so people can check that out. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, appreciate your work, man. Thanks, Troy. Thanks for the good chances to air out my views. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Troy Farah. That's me, Christopher Raff, and Zachary Siegel. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash narcotica. You can request some free merch like stickers or request a shout out on the show. Uh, more perks are coming soon. I know we've been saying that for a while, but it takes a while to make really cool t-shirts and we are about to reveal them pretty quickly. So pay attention to that. A little bit of support goes a long way. So thanks for helping us out. We really appreciate it. Staying ad-free is important to us. Um, If Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast. It advocates for social justice and abolishing the drug war. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts as well. Give us five stars if you think we deserve it. That'll help a lot. Our theme music is by Glassboy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by Crowander. The song is Humbug. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, which we never update, but fuck Instagram. Um, These are the best ways to contact us if you have a suggestion, complaint, or want to tell us nice things. Uh, There's also YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. That's everything. Have a great week.